Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? Once again, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. It's a good thing I found these mushrooms. I was fucking starving. This is how I found you. Let me demonstrate. <laughs> Is your brain on the box? This is my brain on the box. Does anybody else feel like a fried egg? Son, you got a panty on your head. Just drive fast. Down to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. Flower you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child rearing years lay ahead. But <laughs> biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. At the time, his little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems. And the answer to all our prayers. He's beautiful. Why are you kidding? We got us a family here. I want Nathan Jr. back. What's his name? Ed Jr. Hi, Jr. So far, we've just been using Jr. We call him Jr. He's out there somewhere. Hold on, Nathan. We're gonna go pick up Daddy. I've been taking these huggies and, uh, whatever cash you got. <laughs> you busted out of jail. We released Rashad on our own recognizance. What over here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. <laughs> we got a child now! Everything's changed! Yeah! Where's Junior? <laughs> Who the hell are you? I'm a fan. We're absolutely going to get him back. This ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! And you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona. A comedy beyond belief. Well, they didn't know I was going to hear it.
Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Inside uh, Movies Galore. I'm your host, David Stregge, and uh, uh, here we have another film uh, to discuss for you, but, uh, but uh, we have uh, Jake here, ready and willing to take up the, uh, uh, the mantle for, the, uh, for that. Jake, why don't you tell us what movie we're uh, going to be discussing? All right, thanks, Dave. Um, we're doing the 1970-1987 Coen Brothers classic comedy, uh, Raising Arizona, a uh, film that starred uh, Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, Tex Cobb, and a handful of other folks. Uh, and uh, before we really launch into it, uh, let's go ahead and uh, around the room and... Um, well, I guess I'll go ahead and do real quick the, the, the short synopsis. The short synopsis is, Recidivist hold-up man H.I. McDonough and policewoman Edwina, Mary, only to discover they are unable to conceive a child. Desperate for a baby, the pair decide to kidnap one of the quintuplets furniture tycoon Nathan, Arizona. The McDonough's try to keep their crime secret while friends, co-workers, and a feral bounty hunter look to use Nathan Jr. for their own purposes. So uh, I guess let's start with you, Dave. Is this your first time seeing this? And what do you think? This is actually my second time seeing this film. And the first time, I actually somewhat enjoyed it. The second time, uh, I I don't know why, but uh, but I found an annoyingness uh, to it, only in the fact that the guy was yodeling through some of the part, and that kind of uh, uh, reminds me of that that commercial that uh, that kept coming on for like hours on end. So I, I don't know why, but uh, I I. Get the humor in the, uh, uh, this film. I get why people uh, people love this uh, film, and it's just they uh, the Coen Brothers do, uh, don't follow any rhyme or reason, and in a sense, they kind of remind me of uh, Terry Gilliam in the sense of style of filmmaking, uh, because the, uh, you never know what to expect from them. You know, every 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 time they come up with a film, so. Um, but I kept on hearing about uh, uh, about it over the years, and people kept referring to it, and filmmakers alike kept saying, "Go see the Cohen Brothers; they're fantastic." I'm like, okay. Uh, so I've seen um, many of their films. I haven't seen all of them, but um, I have to say that this is uh, this is one of this this is one of my favorite of theirs, so I guess um, who else wants to uh, go? Um, how about Katie? Why don't you go next? Sure. Uh, this is a rewatch for me. Actually, I think the first time I saw it, um, I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, and it's actually the first PG-13 movie I've ever seen in my life. So, I'm not sure if I've seen it since that time. Um, I remembered kind of the general premise of the film, but I forgot how slapstick cartoon funny it was. And maybe when I saw it the first time as a kid, it didn't read quite as that to me. I seem to really remember the scene 
with the like demon apocalypse biker guy um the that dream sequence that hi has that was the the part of the movie that always stuck with me and i think it was maybe the first time i had seen like some guy blow up a bunny rabbit with a grenade you know just like as a kid it really stuck with me so um you know that was what i remembered about the movie so going back and watching it again i actually bought it because i got i got it really cheap on dvd and i thought it's a good one to have in the collection just even for the fact that it was my first pg-13 movie um and i really enjoyed it again as an adult and i think um i was able to really appreciate the cartoony humor in it and just in general um how ridiculous it was it was a lot of fun uh, I couldn't even tell you what my first PG thirteen was. I, I don't. I have no idea. Damien, <laughs> um, how about you? I uh, have seen this movie many times, and uh, trying to think. I mean, it's a it's a very good one. It's one of the more outright comedic um, Coen Brothers films. Um, there are a lot of them that they've done that have a lot of elements of comedy in them. But, um, you know, this one, that, that, but they're not necessarily comedies all the way through. This one, I think, um, is an outright comedy. And I was always impressed with the fact that they were able to make a premise like stealing someone's baby. You know, they were able to make that not, yeah, I don't know, they were able to take something that could have derailed really fast and they actually made it pretty funny and palatable and made the characters really likable. And it was like, isn't that amazing that they did what I think a lot of people weren't, would never be able to do uh, with that same subject matter. And, um, you know, likable characters. Um, Nicolas Cage gives a good performance. Holly Hunter does. They have a great uh, chemistry together. It's very unlike anything else, I think, that it was made before or since. So, you know, all-around success. All right. And Brandon? Oh, well, uh, as you probably know, I ha this is definitely not my first time watching it. I don't know how many times. I know I've seen it more than once prior to today. Um, I know my first Coen Brothers experience was A Brother Where Art Thou? And I have no memory of what my first experience was with this movie. Though as far as impressions, uh, the first impression I had from this movie was that it was a decent comedy, but there was something that felt off by it. And I remember that being my first impression. Uh, having watched it now, I don't know what's changed. Maybe it's that I've, uh, I've grown uh, in my uh, tastes or whatnot. But I've gotten to like it much more than I did in the past. And I consider it a decent comedy movie. Uh, as opposed to one that's made me think, uh, trying to think back and com felt, felt conflicted about. <laughs> All right. And for me personally, um, in stark contrast, I actually remember very precisely and specifically the first time I saw this film because it was my first experience with the Brothers Cohen. Uh, I actually saw Brother Arthur a few months later. It was the first one I saw in theaters. But um, I was not a really, believe it or not, a, not a big movie fan 
growing up. I, I watched movies. I liked movies. But I didn't really become a big movie buff until college. And I fell in with a group of uh, people who were big-time movie geeks. And one of them also was named Joel. And he, uh, one night, they were doing a movie night, and he's introduced this as his all-time favorite film. And I watched it, and I was like, holy crap, what was that? <laughs> and I loved it. It was just so different and unique and totally not what I expected. I mean, I'd heard of the film. I'd seen it on movie store shelves. I think I thought it was a romantic comedy or something. And, you know, and it was from the 80s. So, you know, that's a strike against her right there. Uh, so I had no idea what to expect. Uh, within weeks, I had seen Fargo. I had seen a couple of their other films. Like I said, I saw Brother Arthur not long after. Brandon can tell you I'm a huge fan of the Cohen Brothers. Their films are a mixed bag, but part of what Dave said, they really will come at you from every different angle. Uh, I disagree that there's no cohesion to their films because they do tend to hit on the same themes, but they approach in each time from very different angles. Their first film was a very dark, spare, cold, borderline horror film called Blood Simple. This was their second film. They intentionally went as far in the other direction as they could. <laughs> Believe it or not, Blood Simple is actually my favorite of theirs. Uh, 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 maybe because it is uh, just so different from any of their other uh, 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 other releases you know i mean i mean you you got uh, that same older guy who was in the factory in, in raising arizona in there so yeah i think we called him the ear bending co-worker or something yeah <laughs> yeah and then that walsh was great and blood simple and he's amusing in raising arizona he only has those two little scenes those are two scenes i guess but he's 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 pretty interesting uh, and then, of course, Nick Cage just, he, he, long before he had a reputation for being a manic, crazy person, he got to play a manic, crazy person. <laughs> a very likable one. You actually really like him and root for him in this film. Um, so, basically, I already did the basic synopsis. Um, I guess the more extended plot is basically you have um, H.I. McDonough, or Hi McDonough, uh, he likes to hold up uh, convenience stores. That's his basically how he makes a living. But he's not very good at it. He keeps ending up in jail. But he never, as I say, you never use live ammo. <laughs> <laughs> They, he, he keeps getting released, and I love the parole board scenes. I'm curious, did everyone else agree on there? That was always one of my favorite parts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the the dialogue is just so yeah. good through all of it, the things they say, yeah. and especially um, when he's talking with the parole board. There's some funny one-liners in there. Uh, uh, I'm say what you want us to hear. Uh, well, no, uh... <laughs> yeah, so, well, what do you want to hear the truth? Well, then I am telling you what you want to hear. <laughs> well, we didn't, didn't we just say not to do that? Yeah, okay, then. <laughs> and, of course, that's the running refrain throughout the movie is, okay, then. 
<laughs> the dialogue is always just particularly unique in a Coen Brothers film, much like a uh, gosh, m much like a Wes Anderson piece in a way. Uh, the way people talk, the way that they act, it's just slightly different than in reality. Um, almost like English prose in a way, and uh, and you see it in a lot of their films, but not all of them. Um, and yeah, that's just a he fits along with Buster Scruggs and um, what was the professor's name in Lady Killers, the Tom Hanks character? To me, those were like the, the most over-the-top characters. They're like really, 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 lots of big words and, you know. <laughs> um, and then the, um, what was the... Uh, there were a couple other just moments of dialogue that were just great. Um, and then, of course, the uh, the film is a little more fast and loose than so. Well, I guess we can do that later when we talk into the production part of it. Um, but basically, you get this, this uh, furniture magnate. Him and his wife have quints, and Hi and Ed can't have kids. And they're like, it's like... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, let's help them out and help ourselves at the same time. <laughs> yeah, they see it on TV, don't they? Where they're getting interviewed or something, and the Arizonas are like, yeah, it's too much to handle. And so Ed gets it in her head, like, it's too much for them to handle. Let's take one. <laughs> so you come back here without a baby. I want my baby. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the brothers, the Snopes brothers, who I knew from jail, and they're played by John Goodman and William Forsythe. They break out and come visiting, and that's a complication. He looks like Babyface Nelson, William Forsythe. Uh, so I've never been here compared to his Out for Justice role. <laughs> Uh, I think Forsyth, I think this film, and the other one I associate him with is Dick Tracy, and this is definitely a more innocent character than he played in that one. <laughs> Most definitely. That is a movie I haven't seen in a long time. Wow. Uh, Dick Tracy? Yeah. Holy cow. That's a, that's a good one. I think it's very underrated. I agree. Oh, I that was part of the Dick Tracy uh -huh. fan club when I was a kid. Come to think of it. And now we have the watches. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had that stuff. <laughs> All right. And then you have uh, the other big plot element, of course, is you got the, uh, the bounty hunter who shows up out of nowhere to track down the baby. But beforehand, High has that prophetic dream. And that was a interesting. You get this good, this like leather bound, tough dude with the cigar, <laughs> and, and then he's got the real baby booties hanging from his belt. <laughs> and of course, and the tattoo. That is a scene that that was cemented in my brain, like I said, for the longest time about this movie. And, yeah, it did not disappoint this time around. It was still a really good scene. I love that his tattoo says, Mama didn't love me. <laughs> uh, when I first saw that scene, I remember thinking to myself, 
is this what he believes uh, the kid is going to grow up to be like? Because it just seemed like this over-the-top, almost evil individual. I mean, he threw us a grenade for the rabbit to come up and uh, and pick up. Uh, he shoots a lizard just, stand, just sitting there on a rock. Actually, as far as things go, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> because it, to me, it's just that... And how over the top evil he is, it just made right. me laugh. And then I has that uh, line in his narration where was it like it's a tough world for the little things or the little creatures, which apparently was a direct reference to Night of the Hunter, which is a movie I hated the first time I saw it. I guess I need to see it again and see what I think this time. That's one of my all time favorite movies, and it's it's just a masterpiece of. Uh, kind of southern gothic, you know, thriller with children as the protagonist, and they're very, both movies have that correct, uh, the world is a very tough place for little creatures and little, you know, life forms like children. Although, yeah, that's totally like a theme, I think, for the film. Which is why you have movies like Village of the Dam, so that the children get revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone else have any uh, anything we missed on plot, or do we want to do full-blown jump into character? Or? The characters are definitely more interesting than the plot in this one, I think. Yeah, the mm -hmm. plot is kind of fun, but yeah. Who wants to jump off first? Well, pick one. <laughs> well, I think our obvious choice is H.I. McDonough first, don't you think? Sounds good. Oh, let's think of his name first of all. What, 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 what do we think of his name? <laughs> he sounds very important. <laughs> I well, very memorable name. You know, it sticks with you. You know. <laughs> well, he's got your typical except he's got that uh, that itch to steal shit. You know. And not kill anyone, mind you. He's actually got a code, sort of. Because there's a lot that's said, said where, um, um, what if you get caught with with an armed, armed weapon? Well, it's technically not an armed weapon if it's unloaded. Well, I think he really paints the picture of um, you know, the type of people that we're seeing in this film, they're kind of, um, like caricatures of people. They're very, they have like this Southern drawl, which I don't believe is like how people in Arizona talk at all. <laughs> so that's kind of odd. It's sort of like this, there's somewhere in there it's said of like, or maybe all they read is like Bible, the Bible and like tabloids at the you know, check out at the grocery store. Like, it's a combining of those two elements. Like, very, like, hillbilly-type people is kind of who, the, the style of people that are in this film. And it's um, a, a really good glimpse into that when we first meet High and his character. And kind of, he's, he's a noble guy, but he's kind of simple, too, a little bit. Yeah. Um, just, for, just for reference, so... Um... In the pre-show, before we started rolling, we were talking about A Serious Man, which was based on uh, the Coen brothers growing up as Jews in Minnesota, 
where, you know, they felt like outsiders and they felt like no one understood them and all that kind of stuff. And um, so with that being said, you have uh, other films that they've done. So you have A Brother Rata, which is in the Deep South. You have True Grip, which is, you know, in the Old West and it's all over the place. And you have this in Arizona. And you have, you know, just other films that are in these different pockets of what one could call Middle America or, you know, some place that's kind of different um, than L.A. or New York or more urbanized areas. And so then you find a lot of interesting folks in those areas. And I know that within um, the kind of Americana landscape, I know that especially with True Grit, they kind of thought of it in their heads as kind of like Alice in Wonderland or as some kind of almost fairy tale aspect of, you know, you see that especially in True Grit where they meet the bear guy and some of the other weird characters. So taking it into that lens, then you kind of see where some of the, um, different absurdist characters that they run into that, that have kind of a mythological, larger-than-life um, feel to them, such as the biker who's after the baby, uh, who's like this unkillable monster that you might have seen from a Greek mythological tale or something, and then, of course, uh, the fact that Oh Brother Art, that was based directly on Homer's Odyssey, you know, so... I think that that's kind of perhaps where some of those uh, pastiche characters come in, that their feeling in life, how they grew up, kind of influenced how they approached um, filmmaking and also their characterizations of some of these people in this kind of almost fantasy landscape that somehow also does really exist. Also, it's worth noting, someone already said, I think, early on, that this film, in a lot of ways, is like a live-action cartoon. So definitely the exaggerated acting and the exaggerated uh, accents plays into that. That's all sort of larger than we feel for this particular one. More than any of the other films, I think, this one does have that sort of live-action Looney Tunes feel to it that... It's like a full-blown, old-school, screwball comedy, but with that dash of Looney Tunes thrown in for extra insanity. You know, it's kind of... <laughs> and High, High feels like our Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. You know? And then you, you have that tattoo also that, that you, you find out mm-hmm. High bounty hunter have that kind of calls to mind both the roadrunner and uh woody woodpecker but i i think it's actually what's his name it's an older mr horsepower that's what it is it's an old logo from the 50s apparently um but it kind of calls to mind both of those cartoon kind of characters and um i also just want to mention you mentioned like they they have a tendency to call upon their Jewish heritage in their films. Apparently, high is a Hebrew word meaning life. Mm-hmm. And that was apparently something on their mind when they called him high, at least in my understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're very well versed in their, um, well, so, several things, not, uh, you know, like I said, the kind of fantasy aspects of, of real life. 
you know, despite it being often very gritty and real, there is a kind of either fantastical, mythological, kind of larger-than-life feel to things, but also their, um, I guess, uh, religiously informed existentialism is throughout their films. Um, like we said in the pregame, we had uh, the cosmic ridiculousness that's present in A Serious Man about how human beings are inherently comic in our imperfections and how uh, we are so uh, able to be, to have our best laid plans get pulled out from under us. And, um, you know, same with uh, No Country for Old Men, where, you know, the whole movie is about not only do we not, can we not fully understand why evil people do what they do, but also that uh, the good guys don't always win, and it's for reasons that we can't necessarily always understand. And, uh, you know, here, you know, same kind of thing, that these are these people that are looking for a better life for themselves, and the world around them is telling them, no, you know, you're, th this relationship can't work. What you want, you know, your, your wife is barren. She can't conceive a child of her own. And then here's Nathan, Arizona, kind of classical, um, almost waspy, uh, you know, Americana person, you know, he's got all these different babies, well, can't we have one? You know, why can't life grant us that? And, uh, you know, so it's that kind of, I think, underlying yearning for, uh, I guess, just basic human right, uh, human justice, human decency, and um, in the face of cosmic ridiculousness, and that maybe sounds a little overly academic, but I do think that's pretty well present in, in their movies, and, um, you know, I think even in the context of something like this, which is sort of cartoony, it's, uh, you know, it's something that I think uh, is, is pretty profound, because all of us, to various degrees, are fighting against our own the, the cages that life so often tries to put us in, and, uh, you know, this is the story of when two people who, by all accounts, shouldn't have been together, or shouldn't have had any reason to be together, said, you know what, you know, we're going to go against the grain, and we're going to try to make a better life for ourselves, albeit through very criminal, uh, not exactly morally advisable means. <laughs> And um, I definitely think most of their films are flavored by an academic sense of looking at the world, and that's one thing I kind of like about it. Uh, what do y'all, I, I guess this would be a good time to move on to the character of Ed. Like, what do y'all think of her as a character? She's kind of sympathetic in a lot of ways, uh, if you think about it. There are plenty of stories out there of the... Or the also yearns for something more in life. Uh, she's sort of that anchor and on order, not just in the sense of being the law, but also being far more stable than he is. But then when you put the pressure on, she turns out to be just as unstable, if not worse, than he is in the end. Uh, almost a Lady Macbeth type character in a way. <laughs> sort of, except that I think she's a little bit less. Uh, well, she's actually kind of the opposite of 
Lily Macbeth when it comes to children, just because uh, there's the infamous line that uh, Lily Macbeth has about how uh, she wanted to dash the brains out of an of a infant. And, um, you know, so there's that. So she's very caring and loving towards the baby. Um, but as far as her having a bit more uh, brains and stability, and yet, you know, she can also break down as much as anybody else, um, you know, that's definitely on point. Um, I think the other thing that makes, the thing that makes them so special as characters and so special together is that, you know, again, they, they are people that society says that they should not have any reason to want to be together because they're on opposite sides of the law for so much of the time that they know each other and, you know, there's this kind of implicit understanding that once you've broken the law in American society that you're practically subhuman and there's no hope for you, pretty much. Um, you know, and then here, you know, here they are fighting against all of that in a very natural, believable way. And, uh, you know, it's a testament to the fact that it, we... Society often reinforces the cages that we find ourselves in, but that we're able to break out of them if only we have the will to do so. And also, if uh, in this case, if we have somebody who is just as nuts as we are in a kind of existential definition of nuts. Um, and, you know, that we don't have to be defined by whatever society would try to put upon us. Um, so in that sense, it's a little bit more optimistic than something like A Serious Man or like uh, No Country for Old Men, which um, both of those have a rather bleak outlook on our higher purposes and our attempts to find justice and meaning in a world that doesn't really seem to have any at least that are not ones that aren't necessarily clearly defined right. <clears throat> the um i wish i had it with me uh <laughs> there's a really cool book that i took out recently from the library called the cohen brothers this book ties the films together <laughs> and uh obviously the reference there to the big lebowski um but they have some really fun insights on each one of the films and one that I thought was interesting was they drew a lot of parallels between Ed and Marge Gunderson from Fargo. And they kind of drew a lot of parallels of how you have these two characters who one is wants anything to become a mother and the other one has is, is close to achieving that goal. And they kind of compared and contrasted the over, overly manic husband in this one with the almost comatose one. In second, um, it was very interesting to see that they hit that theme from two different angles. You know, they came right back to that same sort of setup pretty soon after. But um, in this particular one, uh, yeah, Ed's a, she's a, she's kind of fun. Of course, Holly Hunter's long been a, a friend of the Cohens. She was roommates with Francis McDormand, so they like you know a long history there. They get her to go a little overboard on this one, but for the most part, she, I, I think she played it really, really well. Um, 
Anyone have any further thoughts on her before we move on to another? Or? Um, I, I've always liked Holly Hunter as an actress, and I like that um, in this film, and what was this, 80, was this 86 or 87? I think it was 87. Yeah. Because uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Broadcast News came out in that same year, Please. and um, she plays a character that's not that far off uh, from her character here because of... Uh, same kind of thing, they're both very good at being able to maintain the exterior of having everything together and, you know, being able to not so much order around other people, but just, like, you know, they have a head on their shoulders and they're able to stay on their own two feet and not fall to pieces. And then behind closed doors or with someone that they trust, like... Uh, in this film, they are able to be vulnerable, and they're able to show that they are human. You know, they're not uh, invincible. And that same kind of character is there in uh, broadcast news, except there she is a boss. Uh, she is someone who's having to manage a lot of people, and only um, when she's by herself is she able to cry and is able to let out all of the... Um, the pent-up emotions, and here, you know, she uh, is able to keep it together quite well. She's a woman of the law and all that stuff, and then, uh, you know, upon getting a baby, she's so happy that she just breaks down, and it's, of course, very funny, but again, very profound, because that's somebody, that's a very specific kind of person. I hate to admit, I still need to see broadcast news. It's sad. That's a, it's a really good one. Yeah. Excellent film. Uh, well, y'all, um, did anyone have any particular take on the Snopes Brothers? Any, uh, any thoughts there? Well, uh, I guess uh, at least John Goodman had that Shawshank Redemption moment where, uh, where he came out of the <laughs> ground there, uh, uh, there, except it wasn't rain that he came out in. It was sewage. <laughs> but they, it seemed like they gave him his moments there, you know. <laughs> John Goodman is such an outstanding actor in just about everything. I don't think I've ever seen him act poorly. I I really love the way that the Coens use him as an actor because they always they don't do what Disney does with him, where they just kind of have him play the, the general nice guy. I, I like that they really test him as an actor, and they really um, are able to say, you know, you can be a complex character, or you can, uh, especially in my favorite Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink. You know, I don't want to give too much away, but the character there is a pretty amazing one, an amazing performance on his part. And, um, I just, I think he's such an outstanding actor, and this is a smaller smaller role for him, but still, he has much more of an edge than I think a lot of people realize if they only watch, you know, Monsters, Inc. or something like that. Right, the uh, the the uh, list that, that Brandon and I did of the people overdue for, uh, he has never been nominated for an Oscar. Ridiculous. Yeah. 
And the two films that I cited as his best performances are Barton Fink and The Big Lebowski. He is phenomenal in both films. And yes, he is excellent in this one and Oh Brother Art Thou. He has a long history with the Coens. And um, yeah, he, he just, and the funny thing is, I, I, never, I read apparently the Coens were not thinking Goodman and Forsyth at all when they were casting the roles but both of them came in and did so well and they both had sort of a baby faced look like I think Dave you pointed that out and they were like oh well this goes with the baby theme that's perfect <laughs> uh, John Goodman always comes across as an interesting character in most of the Coen Brothers films and I agree that Barton Fink uh, was where he was at his most awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I just... Like, go ahead. I was going to say, I felt like um, in Raising Arizona, I saw hints of, of John Goodman's character from The Big Lebowski. Like, some of that stuff yeah, through a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I, I, Especially I really... the scene in the car where they forget the baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much better impulse control on this film than he does <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's very true. Um, yeah, the the character that he plays in um, Ian Barton Fink, and especially, well, really all the characters in there, um, those are the kind of characters I'm really attracted to. I really love um, characters that have some something about them that's not quite right, and or something that they have multiple layers to them, and. Um, even within something as ridiculous as this movie, uh, like you said, there's a hint of Walter Subchak in uh, this character, and in both instances, Walter Subchak and uh, cannot remember his name in here, but um, they uh, have a certain degree of instability underneath the surface and obviously here he's a criminal has escaped so it's a little bit more visible but um you know it's uh there's something really nice that you can have this in john goodman's case is very got a kindly face but also can be scary and can be intimidating and all these different things but he's always he's got a good way of uh hiding the inner darkness of a person within a quote-unquote baby-faced uh, ex exterior. He was now like frightening in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm, but, I love that movie. But um, it's also worth noting, again, keeping with the baby theme and one of the reasons why they cast them, that whole coming out of the ground in the mud, in the rain and everything... They, even in a film like this that, you know, it is kind of an over-the-top ridiculous film, but the Coens still have their thematic moments and their academic moments, and that whole scene was definitely supposed to evoke birth and coming into the world and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. and, 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 yeah, Dave, it does have that Shawshank feel, which makes you wonder if Frank Darabont was a fan of this film. Quite possibly, and, Technically, in all th in all points, uh, that that scene where he's coming out of the ground is an amazing scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I like that you don't really know what to make of it. You know, it's it's a really nice. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of moments in the movie that you're not quite sure at first what to make of it, and I think that uh, 
that's another good example of a scene like that where you're like, is that funny? Is it scary? Is it, you know, uh, what is it? You know, and uh, I do think that that kind of fits the Coen Brothers sense of humor is that it's kind of all of those things at once. I think it's hilarious that they break out of prison in the middle of the night and they're just yelling at the top of their lungs. It's like, you're not going to get away if you don't shut up. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, did anyone else want to talk about any of the other characters? Uh, Nathan Arizona, the bounty hunter, or any, any particular ones there? Well, um, one of my favorite. Uh, well, yeah, even though I know we can get to the, the favorite uh, scenes, but uh, but one of the characters that I really, really hated was evidently Ed's friend uh, that, uh, that came, uh, came over. Uh, over uh, that, was the boss, uh, that was his his boss's wife or something like that. Yeah, uh, the kids came over and they were beating on the car and they were uh, they were tearing up the house. Uh, house. I, uh, and the way that she talked and over talked. I, I looked at, uh, at my fiance Tammy and uh, I was like, "You ever have a friend like that? I'll shoot you." <laughs> that's the point you know the point is to make these people as ridiculous as possible and that was a great that, that couple was great I thought their characters and the kids and I, uh, I'm i understanding that um, she ad-libs one of the scenes there where she yells at some kid about take your diaper off your sister's head and put it back on her or something like that like she made it up on the fly so I think that's awesome Oh, yeah, and of course, Frances McDormand is the Mrs. Joel Cohen, and another person with a long relationship with them. She's been in a lot of their stuff, and I think that there's sort of that comfort there that they can just bring her in and let her loose and let her do whatever. And then, of course, Sam McMurray has made a career of playing horrible people, and he has had very few as horrible as this person. It's just... Oh my God! It was a, when I decked him. I I cheered. I was like, "All right." <laughs> uh, well, I don't think there was any other uh, that that came. It was expected, but it was unexpected at the same time. So comedically, the timing was great. <laughs> yep. So, other than that, uh, that, I don't think there are any other characters that uh, we totally entirely need to talk about. I mean, we've already talked about what what is it, the, the biker dude it is somewhat over time. So I, I like, just very quickly, on a it's more of a thematic level, but a level, a thing that was expressed through the character of Nathan Arizona. He is uh, kind of like this perfect American guy who even has the last name of an American state and he's got these kids that are like carbon copies of each other you know and uh, so it's kind of in a, in a way and he's like always proclaiming his greatness like my name ain't Nathan Arizona if blah 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 isn't so yeah, what because they do bring up that one point that he changed his name. It's like, would you buy a, a, something from a Unpainted Huffheim or whatever it was? Yeah, yeah. But, but that also is very American because uh, 
you know, you had a lot of immigrants many years ago come over to this country and they changed their name to sound more, you know, sound less ethnic, quote-unquote, and, um, you know, so it's kind of that same thing, and so then what does that person do? They go on and they make a name for themselves and they, by selling things and by contributing to this idealistic capitalist system, and they have this nice house and they have... Uh, you know, these kids that are all carbon copies of each other, and it's like this mass-produced kind of consumeristic uh, way of going about life. And, uh, you know, so he's rightfully going after them on the one hand, but then it's like, again, um, two misfits that are saying, you know, we don't deserve this lot in life or this expectation of us. And so who do they steal the baby from? It's the one who, um, by all accounts, is the idealized American man, uh, the, the idealized societal conformer. And, uh, you know, they're like, well, even he has more than he can handle. That's their rationalization. And uh, so it's kind of a, you know, rob the rich to feed the poor kind of thing, but it's also on a larger level where we say, you know, we deserve happiness as well. It's not just the select few who were in a similar position to us generations ago and are now on top and are, have been on top for a while. Um, you know, that we, who aren't in that position, we deserve this happiness as much as anyone. Right. Yeah. All right. The, um, ah, jeez. I had a thought. I'm sorry. It, lo I, it left me. But, <laughs> but um, it's also worth noting, um, and we'll get into this more once we get into the overall production and stuff, but, like, the Cohen's, make a lot of callbacks, a lot of references, a lot of notes. We've mentioned a couple already. We're talking about the importance of a name. I do like how the character of the bounty hunter, Leonard Smalls, is a direct reference to Lenny Small and of Mice and Men, which brings mm. in Steinbeck, which definitely brings in what you were saying, the whole idea of the have-nots and all their kind of, you know, trying to do something with their lot in life, that's definitely a constant theme in Steinbeck. So that was kind of an interesting callback there. Mm -hmm. Alright, so I guess we want to move on to uh, talking about the production and stuff. Um, this, of course, was shot by Barry Sonnenfeld, who was an early collaborator with the Cohen's, and he had a lot of really sweeping camera and all that kind of stuff. There was some decent special effects for the 80s. Uh, yells overall thoughts on the production values for this one. I thought it was shot really beautifully. There's, like, particularly a scene we haven't talked about, that I don't think the, um, where he robs the convenience store and then she ditches them and he runs through <laughs> the city and through the grocery <laughs> store and all the dogs are chasing. Like, all the different points of view throughout that scene is... It's really great. One of the best chase scenes I've seen. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, also, uh, the uh, um, uh, when uh, John Goodman and uh, uh, the character of High actually fi uh, 
fight and he's being thrown through the room. Uh, I actually thought that those tiles were actually real, but, uh, but when he threw him through the wall it's, uh, and he stuck his foot through, uh, through the wall, it's like, oh, so that was cardboard anyways. They can afford real tiles. <laughs> No, no. I've I've worked uh, I've worked with people living in trailers. That's not too unrealistic. <laughs> I'm, I'm not unrealistic, but uh, but but I actually for much of the fil uh, film while the, uh, while you uh, while I was looking at the trailer, I thought that was like real tiles, you know. And then when when he threw them through the wall, I was like, oh, I guess it's paper thin, anyways. <laughs> Uh, I actually, I mean, I'm going back to the mud scene where the guy is coming up through the mud and, of course, muck. That had to have taken a lot of work to accomplish that scene. And uh, just bring him upside down up through. Oh, yes. <laughs> up through the hole. Legs <laughs> first. <laughs> Pull him up. Yeah, that was very interesting. <laughs> And then this is followed up, actually, I'll just go ahead and mention, like, this is uh, one of my favorite call-outs to another film was right after that, when they're in the bathroom, and you see what's written on the door behind them. And I know Dane caught this, but <laughs> it's just, I absolutely love that it. it was a Dr. Strangelove reference there. Mm, that's right. With the P-O-E and the O-P. Yeah, that's, uh... Great homage there, and I obviously I'm a huge fan of Kubrick, and I'm glad that they pay rightful homage there. Another homage talking about the camera work. Apparently, the scene, and you guys probably all know the movie better than I do, so you probably can. Oh, yeah, but I read that the scene where um, High envisions Florence, Arizona finding the missing child was a direct homage to The Evil Dead, which, of course, was the first film that uh, Joel Cohen was credited for as the editor of the film. Um, but apparently the way they did the camera there was a direct tie-in. Yeah, it was... Um, Sam Raimi had created the technique or something like that. Yes, he did. Um, are you to referring to that, that camera on the uh, motorcycle technique? Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, like, or, and then it follows, they, like, go up the ladder into yeah. the bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because um, the Coens and uh, Sam Raimi were contemporaries of each other, and they were in, I think it was uh, Sam Raimi, remind me, did he come from Michigan? Um you know, but they were not that far away from each other. I, c I could be wrong about Michigan, but... Um, you know, like, Ramey and Joel Cohen, I think they were contemporaries in film school, if I remember. That's, that's what I remember. Because um, the, the first Evil Dead was shot in Tennessee, and then uh, every other one um, is set in, like, uh, Dearborn, Michigan, if I recall. Um, and uh, then... Yeah, yeah, I know that they were contemporaries and they learned a lot from each other and they kind of branched off and they did their own thing, but they still crossed paths a lot and they learned from each other. And, uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that they would 
you know, crossover technique-wise. They just didn't bring the boomstick with them, did they? No, they did not, and they should have. <laughs> do you envision, uh, envision Bruce Campbell as the bounty hunter now? <laughs> I could well envision him. But you know what? I was thinking Doug the bounty hunter, kind of. <laughs> Except having a Bud Spencer kind of look. How would it have come across if um, John Goodman was the bounty hunter? <laughs> that would have been something. I mean, he's very different stone, so. <laughs> but he he could have done it capably, and uh, it would have been. But uh, again, it's just all interesting to see what could have been. Well, uh, Tex Cobb uh, and Nicholas Cage were both a little difficult for the Cohen brothers because they have a very methodical way of doing filmmaking. And they found both of them difficult to work with. They described Cobb as a, a force of nature. <laughs> and apparently Cage came out and said that, you know, it was really hard working for these directors who wanted to do exactly this and not that, but that he respected the process and that overall they, they liked the process, but they, it was an uneasy match. <laughs> Yeah, which, um, I mean, Nicolas Cage has his own style of working, and I know that at uh, that time, I know that, because um, he, he, that was the same year he did Moonstruck, and then the year after that he did Vampire's Kiss, and um, I, I had rewatched the, uh, or I had watched the uh, documentary, not documentary, sorry, I had watched the commentary track about Vampire's Kiss, um, when I got the Blu-ray of it, and there's a really good window into his style of working and how he will often use acting roles as experiments or as ways to try and expand the um, the art form of acting beyond what people are used to uh, seeing from it. And, uh, you know, I think that it's... Uh, and he often can get very... Uh, artistically abstract and um, expressionistic in a way that uh, most audiences and I'm sure most directors aren't used to uh, to seeing and so I am sure that that would be rather difficult um, for you know some people like the Cohen brothers at least at first of course it's interesting that you point out that this was the year Moonstruck came out and I've seen Moonstruck, and it's a good film, but I find it nothing short of criminal that they got tons of Oscar love, and this didn't get a single nod. And actually, I'm going to bring up one other point about the film that I've always loved from the very get-go, and this was one of the most criminal snubs. One person who got their start with the Coens, his very first film gig was Blood Simple, most of his early film gigs were Coen Brothers films, but he started branching out in the mid-90s, and now he's a go-to guy who's finally getting some nods. Carter Burwell did a wonderful score for this film. It's just insane. It's one of the most insane film scores I've ever heard, and I love it. And <laughs> I just think Burwell is just so overdue for any sort of critical love, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he finally got his first ever nod for Carol, which was great, and 
three billboards was great, but Fargo and Miller's Crossing, two of the best scores ever written, you know. And I loved Raising Arizona, too, so it was good times. I would have to What's that? I said I would have to uh, uh, agree. <laughs> All right. Did anyone else have any other thoughts on the overall production and that sort of thing? The... It is notable it's one of the only Cohen films not cut and edited by Roderick James, who is a fictional character. But it was, uh, what was his name? Uh, Miller? Something Miller? Um, but yeah, the Cohens is Roderick James and uh, Ethan's wife, Trisha Cook, have cut most of their films. This one, so that might be another reason why it looks a little different than some of the others do. But, yeah. So, should we move on to favorite scenes? Sure. Sounds good. Yep. All right, who wants to jump in first? Oh, I kind of already mentioned mine with that. I think that chase after the convenience store robbery, um, it's one of my favorites. That It's kind of a toss-up between that one and the introduction of the Larry Smalls character, but um, I don't know, I just love all the different things going on in that chase scene. It is, it's pretty epic. It is, yes. <laughs> I'd have to say that my favorite uh, scenes were, uh, were the scenes <laughs> where the kids were beaten on the car, and then you see the ki uh, kid writing on the wall the, uh, the word fart, so uh, I, I don't know why, but, uh, uh, but uh, just how obnoxious these kids are. Uh, it, it, and it kind of reminds me of uh, my uh, one of my best friends' kids when I used to uh, take care of them. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> I can kind of relate. Some horrible kids to have to deal with. Exactly. <laughs> I did love that line about take that diaper off your head and put it on your sister. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've always said mine was the introduction of the bounty hunter. Yeah. <laughs> the fact like, that it was dreamed up. <laughs> yeah, I like any of the uh, the dream bits, and I also uh, obviously like the, uh, you know, I'll take the huggies and whatever cash you got. Actually, we didn't really mention this, but the very last scene is a dream sequence, and this may be the only Coen Brothers film where that's the case. I think it is. And it kind of gives it a hopeful ending, but it also gives it an open-ended ending because you know it's a dream. So it's kind of like, it's, it's interesting how they did that. But yeah, the use of the dream sequences was pretty pretty cool. The, uh, what was the film that Cohen Brothers did after this? Their follow-up to this was Miller's Crossing, but they actually, they had already started work on Hudsucker Proxy and Barton Fink, but they did not have the funding to do Hudsucker Proxy, and they had a bad case of writer's block during Barton Fink, so they wrote Miller's Crossing. And no, opposite, opposite. They had a tough case of writer's block with Miller's Crossing, and so that's when they cranked out Barton Fink, which is all about a writer who's struggling with writer's block. Right. Well, they did get the Crossing out first, and then Barton Fink. They were like back-to-back. -back. It was one of the earliest back-to-back -back releases. Okay. Yeah. 
I was trying to figure out if one of their next films was in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's funny you say that because I decided tonight after this to watch a movie that supposedly was inspired by the Coens to a degree. It's a film that came out the start of last year called Small Town Crime with John Hawks. Pretty good movie. The entire movie was filmed in Utah. <laughs> and then when I saw that at the end, I was like, holy crap, that was great. <laughs> it's called Small Town Clowns? Oh, oh, I didn't have the mic on. Sorry. Small Town Clowns. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I, as far as me, I don't know that I have a single favorite scene. I think it's mostly the dialogue. Like in that chase sequence, one of my all-time favorite lines, the first time I saw the movie, this stuck in my head. That's the part where, where High flags down the guy in the pickup, and he opens up the door, and the guy's like, Son, you got a panty on your head. <laughs> I just, I love that. And then there was a part later where Gail and where the Snopes brothers tried to hold up the bank, and they're like, "Everybody freeze! Everybody down on the ground!" And his old dudes, which is a young fella, you want us to freeze, or you want us to get down on the ground? I mean, to say when I freeze, I can't really drop, and if I drop, <laughs> I'm in motion. <laughs> that reminds me of the the. Um, are these balloons blow up into funny shapes? It's like, if round is funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that guy, I like that guy, too. There's the part where Avell gets him to, to get down and count up to, what is it, 850? 849, <laughs> yeah. And then, he, and then you hear him counting down, and he, you hear him go, oh, bullshit. He gets up and sees him coming back. <laughs> coming back to get the baby, and he's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so that was more for me, was just like the dialogue. Um, I guess the chase sequence kind of would be the favorite scene if there was one. But like, yeah, I do agree that the bounty hunter was very memorable. That first dream sequence, it sticks in your brain. It's like, that's notable. Um, you know, and then all this stuff with the revolving door parole board, that just <laughs> cracked me up the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, um, that the whole thing with the bunny and the grenade just, I, I don't know why, it just sticks with me. Did anyone else think that <laughs> that might be too. Did anyone else think that could have been a sneaky reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail? <laughs> that did not cross my mind, but I guess you could make that straight. <laughs> the, bunny, the bunny would have killed the mercenary. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys know, um, I heard this summer that the lizard, they actually put a little harness on the lizard so that when the little, you know, gunshot or whatever firecracker went off, they pulled the lizard away so that they didn't actually blow it up? No, that's good. <laughs> I would like to see a still photo of a lizard in a harness. I gotta look for that. Could be a difficult thing to do. <laughs> yes, I know. That's why I want to see it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, I guess we covered everything. Did anyone have any uh, final thoughts or ideas? We did a really 
talk a, a whole lot about the music, but I just wanted to mention how that yodely theme music is like such an earworm. Like I can still hear it in my head, and I think I watched the movie like on Sunday. So yeah, it's like I said, I love that score. You're right, it's an earworm. But it's also at the end, I was commenting because they sneak a little bit of Ode to Joy into there, and I'm sitting there going, "That's got to be one of the more unique performances of that I've heard." Right. Which I feel like if we had a producer, we'd edit the clip right now and play it. <laughs> that that could uh, also have been a small Kubrick reference there too, because of the uh, use of classical film and uh, music. I mean, uh, well, and the fact that you hear the Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement, and the Second Movement in Clockwork Orange several times. Right, it's very important. A little of the old Ludwig van. That's right. Lovely, lovely Ludwig van. We gotta talk about that and and Kubrick in general. Uh, Actually, come to think of it, this was the same year that uh, Full Metal Jacket came out, wasn't it? That's right. And uh, notable films in '87 that were completely ignored by Oscar. Uh, Princess, yeah. Bride, one of them. Oh man, so they they yeah. Well, the Oscars, as we know, they tend to be very, like, self-rewarding rather than, you know, rewarding films of that quote-unquote deserve the award, uh, which, again, even saying that is a little presumptuous because uh, saying that anything deserves whatever award is uh, kind of a precarious uh, designation in the first place because there are a lot of quality films that come out, some of which get nominated, some of which don't, and uh, what defines best, you know, that can often uh, be very subjective, so, you know, it's just, it's a very, I don't know, the mystique, I mean, sure, it's nice to win awards and all that, but the, the mystique of it, uh, you know, you don't win an Oscar and then that magically validates you, you know. Oh, definitely, we saw that play out this year in several instances, but... <laughs> I mean, the the true test, of, I mean, the ultimate award is the test of time, and that ultimately comes down to how your movie appeals to people over many generations, and if it lives on in their hearts, and if they, if it meant something, something to them, and it, obviously if you have a lot of people that feel that way, then that kind of helps to cement it into classic status or even if it's a small group it can be a cult classic or even if it's just one person you know and that's their favorite movie of all time and that's wonderful you know it's just it's it's i'm just realizing just how subjective a lot of that is and uh you know it's uh i mean i think george lucas actually said it best when he was talking at the very end of the uh empire of dreams documentary about the original star wars trilogy where he was saying you know if i can get a room full of people to watch something and, and they enjoy it, then I've done whatever I hope to do. I think that's all that an artist can ask for. Right. Well, in Lucas's case, he does seem to be a little more of a populist filmmaker. Some artists have a whole different ball game going on. The Cullens do have that sort of obsession with 
Uh, I think you might have said earlier tonight the idea of um, like the. I'm not even going to try and quote you, but the, just the absurdity of the human existence or whatever. Yeah, the, the inherent ridiculousness of human existence, which I can definitely yeah. uh, relate to that idea. The one line that that for me was from the, from Old Brother Arthur, where uh, Ulysses uh, Everett McGill, George Clooney's character, has that one line where he says, it's a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Yeah. And... I, I, that theme just runs all through their stuff, and yeah, and, and um, for me, the, yeah, you, you, there was that one person who was a huge, huge fan of this film, and it got me turned on to the the films of this director, and then uh, these direct, you know, I mean these directors, and um, and then hopefully we might get a couple other people watching tonight to go, oh, we need to check that film out, or some of the other stuff, you know. And like you said, it's all rolling, yeah. Well, and I think that it's uh, this film is best looked at in the context of their, of their larger work, because I think that it gives you the most, um, you know, rich analysis of it, you know, and I think that, uh, whenever I'm watching something that's clearly made by gifted artists, um, I'm always kind of wondering what went into it and what are they really trying to tell me about their lives. Because as an artist myself, I know that, uh, you know, that what, and actually, uh, again, George Lucas would say the same thing where, like, when, even if it's something as far out there as, you know, Star Wars, it's like, well, you know, any, he's like, anything I write is my life, you know, I'm not writing a hypothetical thesis on something, I'm writing a story that I have to get extremely emotionally involved in, and, um, you know, in his case, it's for a galaxy far, far away, and for the Coens, it's something that is very like our world, but not 100%, and, uh, you know, it's just everything that an artist writes, you know, if they really are if they really believe in it, it's like that's their life in some way. And so then I'm always asking, okay, what went into this and, you know, what are they really trying to tell me here? And um, I think that in the context of their larger work, what they're trying to tell me is that uh, the human experience is a very confusing kind of um, ridiculous one that we don't fully understand and that's why you see movies like Fargo or Burn After Reading, which are, they're filled with a lot of dark humor, and, um, you know, they're filled with all kinds of uh, missteps and errors and things that could have been avoided, but, you know, that's so much of the human experience, and, uh, you know, that's where, like, Marge Gunderson in Fargo, and that's where our characters in Raising Arizona that's where they come into it because they're relatively ordinary people just trying to make sense of all this and trying to say, you know, we, we have hopes and dreams and, you know, we can get through this, whatever, you know, is being thrown at us. And so, you know, hopefully it does get people interested, but I would also say just one movie in and of itself is not going to tell you the entire story of what the artist is trying to say. Same with Kubrick, you know. Kubrick's uh, body of work has a very clear message to it and a very clear uh, thought process behind it. And seeing the entire canvas 
will help to the entire body of work helps to make that clear. All right. All right. So, any other final thoughts, or should we go into the outros? Huh? I think we covered it pretty well. Okay. So, Katie, you want to lead us off? With, uh, uh, saying who you are and sure. Sure can. I'm Katie Cadaver from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm a body positive horror artist, alternative model, um, burlesque performer, and producer, and also a makeup artist for the horror punk band Rat Bat Spider, and a dead girl for Deggers Dark Coffin Classics, and a Tromet for Trauma Entertainment. And you can find me on pretty much all the social media places, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I have a Patreon as well. Um, and I can get you hooked up with um, all the other things that I do. So come and find me on social media. Hi. Um, so, Brandon, uh, what you, uh, tell us about yourself. Brandon forgot to unmute. I forgot to unmute. Yes, you're right. Whoops. Okay. I'm Sen. It's Sen versus the world. Uh, I run a uh, channel that's dedicated to uh, physical media when the uh, filming equipment works. Um, and uh, we have been uh, doing a lot of focus on the Academy Awards. We had a wonderful awards podcast that we hope to re- uh, <laughs> recapture on Monday, uh, but uh, we have uh, mostly media pickups and um, uh, media-centric top 15s, so uh, check us out. Really good. Uh, Dane, tell us all about yourself. I am Dane Kyle, independent filmmaker out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, got several... Uh, Segments in a lot of different anthology films, such as uh, Grind Exploitation Seven and Eight, which are um, they have the subtitles of Clown Exploitation and Drive and Grindhouse, respectively. Um, also in Creepy Pasta the movie, um, For We Are Many, which is coming up, and uh, I'm going to be shooting uh, another segment for another one this Sunday. And um, getting negotiations to get a existing short film of mine included in another anthology, and hopefully with all this going on, that there will be enough exposure for me to be able to well, not only build up my produced filmography, but also um, be able to then justify getting a feature made, which I've been trying to shop around a script I've already got written, writing a whole bunch more, and. Um, Let's see, uh, wrapping up my girlfriend's web series, uh, Asylum Origins Harley, and a film that I uh, was in as an extra called Blood of the Mummy uh, is making its debut now, and I play a mental patient wearing a pink bathrobe and carrying two pink unicorns, which I do around the house anyway, so go check that out. Very good. What was the title on that one again? Blood of the Mummy. Oh, very good. Um, and my name is Jake, and I often guess on Septum Sin versus the World, and as Brandon said, we've had some, uh, we had a little bit of a technical snafu this week, apparently, but um, do, should still have some good videos heading your way. Uh, 
I do have my own channel as well, Code Bookie Jake, that is uh, dedicated to themes of uh, nature and the natural world. I recently added a few very short videos to that, and once the weather really warms up, I'll have more regular ones added. And um, I don't usually put this forward because not much happens with this, but I do occasionally flirt with the idea of actually participating in filming of sorts. Uh, I did actually last week film or help film uh, a PSA sort of instructional video to help uh, with, uh, in you know, prospective jurors. Uh, where I play a juror, uh, and I also actually went to an audition over the weekend for a uh, potential speaking part in the film, so I don't know that anything will come of that, but I got to do something in the field, which was cool. And uh, otherwise, uh, just, you know, collecting, commenting, etc., etc. Uh, and Dave, uh, tell us a little about yourself, and then go ahead and lead us off. Alrighty, my name is David Stray. I normally host uh, the show, but I, I, I have come to host it with all of you. So uh, thank you for uh, 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 for listening. Uh, I do reviews on uh, this. Uh, well, actually, I set up a different channel for my reviews, but you may actually see some of my reviews show up here. So, uh, but they will only be there shortly, uh, shortly, and and then they'll be all going on to my other uh, uh, reviews uh, view channel, which is called uh, Delusions of Grandeur. So, uh, please, if you can, take a look at that channel and uh, check out some of my reviews. I will have some more this week, and uh, so on and so forth. And next week, Key, what is our film for next week? Uh, sorry, I had to unmute. Um, our film for next week, we're starting off March, and you put me on the spot, so I don't have my list um, handy. Hold on one second. That's okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to Make sure that the listeners uh, know which... Oh, it's Killer Rack. We're starting off our Monster March with Killer Rack. Nice. So, uh... Is, is that about an evil bookcase? Uh, 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 for more on that, ladies and gentlemen, you'll have to stay tuned and listen in. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion tonight and uh fare thee well everyone say night 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 i am leaving soon and you will forgive me if i speak bluntly the universe grows smaller every day and the threat of aggression by any group anywhere can no longer be tolerated there must be security for all, or no one is secure. Now, this does not mean giving up any freedom, except the freedom to act irresponsibly. Now, your ancestors knew this when they made laws to govern themselves and hired policemen to enforce them. Now, we of the other planets have long accepted this principle. We have an organization for the mutual protection of all planets and for the complete elimination of aggression. The test of any such higher authority is, of course, the police force that supports it.
For our policemen, we created a race of robots. Their function is to patrol the planets in spaceships like this one and preserve the peace. In matters of aggression, we have given them absolute power over us. This power cannot be revoked. At the first sign of violence, they act automatically against the aggressor. The penalty for provoking their action is too terrible to risk. The result is we live in peace, without arms or armies, secure in the knowledge that we are free from aggression and war, free to pursue more profitable enterprises. Now, we do not pretend to have achieved perfection, but we do have a system and it works. I came here to give you these facts. It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you.